Chapter 12 of The Wolf Leader by Alexander Dumas. Translated by Alfred Allenson, 1852-1929. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 12 Wolves in the Sheepfold The forest was not far off from the bailiff's house, and in two bounds Thibault found himself on the further side of Les Fossés, and in the wooded path leading to the brickyard. He had no sooner entered the forest than his usual escort surrounded him, fawning and blinking with their eyes and wagging their tails to show their pleasure. Thibault, who had been so alarmed the first time he found himself in company with this strange bodyguard, took no more notice of them now than if they had been a pack of poodles. He gave them a word or two of caress, softly scratched the head of the one that was nearest him, and continued on his way, thinking over his double triumph. He had beaten his host at the bottle, he had vanquished his adversary at fisticuffs, and in this joyous frame of mind he walked along saying aloud to himself, You must acknowledge, friend Thibault, that you are a lucky rascal. Madame Susanna is in every possible respect just what you want. A bailiff's wife? My word! That's a conquest worth making, and if he dies first, what a wife to get! But in either case, when she is walking beside me and taking my arm, whether as wife or mistress, the devil take it if I am mistaken for anything but a gentleman. And to think that unless I am fool enough to play my cards badly, all this will be mine. For she did not deceive me by the way she went off. Those who have nothing to fear have no need to take flight. She was afraid to show her feelings too plainly at first meeting, but how kind she was after she got home. Well, well, it is all working itself out, as I can see. I have only got to push matters a bit, and some fine morning she will find herself rid of her fat little old man, and then the thing is done. Not that I do or can wish for the death of poor Monsieur Magloire. If I take his place after he is no more, well and good. But to kill a man who has given you such good wine to drink, to kill him with his good wine still hot in your mouth, why, even my friend the wolf would blush for me if I were guilty of such a deed. Then, with one of his most roguish smiles, he went on. And besides, would it not be as well to have already acquired some rights over Madame Susanna by the time Monsieur Magloire passes, in the course of nature, into the other world, which, considering the way in which the old scamp eats and drinks, cannot be a matter of long delay? And then, no doubt, because the good qualities of the bailiff's wife, which had been so highly extolled to him, came back to his mind, no, no, he continued, no illness, no death, but just those ordinary disagreeables which happen to everybody only, as it is to be to my advantage. I should like rather more than the usual share to fall to him. One cannot at his age set up for a smart young buck. No, everyone according to their dues. And when these things come to pass, I will give you more than a thank you, cousin Wolf. My readers will doubtless not be of the same way of thinking as Thibault, who saw nothing offensive in this pleasantry of his, but on the contrary rubbed his hands together smiling at his own thoughts, and indeed so pleased with them that he had reached the town and found himself at the end of the rue de Largny before he was aware that he had left the bailiff's house more than a few hundred paces behind him. He now made a sign to his wolves, for it was not quite prudent to traverse the whole town of Villers-Cotterets with a dozen wolves walking alongside as a guard of honor. Not only might they meet dogs by the way, but the dogs might wake up the inhabitants. Six of his wolves, therefore, went off to the right and six to the left, 
and although the paths they took were not exactly of the same length, and although some of them went more quickly than the others, the whole dozen, nevertheless, managed to meet without one missing at the end of the Rue de Lorme. As soon as Thibault had reached the door of his hut, they took leave of him and disappeared. But before they dispersed, Thibault requested them to be at the same spot on the morrow as soon as night fell. Although it was two o'clock before Thibault got home, he was up with the dawn. It is true, however, that the day does not rise very early in the month of January. He was hatching a plot. He had not forgotten the promise he had made to the bailiff to send him some game from his warren, his warren being, in fact, the whole of the forest land which belonged to his most serene highness, the Duke of Orléans. This was why he had got up in such good time. It had snowed for two hours before daybreak, and he now went and explored the forest in all directions with the skill and cunning of a bloodhound. He tracked the deer to its lair, the wild boar to its soil, the hare to its form, and followed their traces to discover where they went at night. And then, when darkness again fell on the forest, he gave a howl, a regular wolf's howl, in answer to which came crowding to him the wolves that he had invited the night before, followed by old and young recruits, even to the very cubs of a year old. Thibault then explained that he expected a more than usually fine night's hunting from his friends, and as an encouragement to them announced his intention of going with them himself and giving his help in the chase. It was in very truth a hunt beyond the power of words to describe. The whole night through did the sombre glades of the forest resound with hideous cries. Here a roebuck pursued by a wolf fell, caught by the throat by another wolf hidden in ambush. There Thibault, knife in hand like a butcher, was running to the assistance of three or four of his ferocious companions, that had already fastened on a fine young boar of four years old, which he now finished off. An old she-wolf came along, bringing with her half a dozen hares, which she had surprised in their love frolics, and she had great difficulty in preventing her cubs from swallowing a whole covey of young partridges which the young marauders had come across with their heads under their wings, without first waiting for the wolf-master to levy his dues. Madame Susanna Magloire little thought what was taking place at this moment in the forest of villers cotterets and on her account. In a couple of hours' time, the wolves had heaped up a perfect cartload of game in front of Thibault's hut. Thibault selected what he wanted for his own purposes, and left over sufficient to provide them a sumptuous repast. Borrowing a mule from the charcoal burner on the pretext that he wanted to convey his shoes to town, he loaded it up with the game and started for villers cotterets there he sold a part of his booty to the game-dealer, reserving the best pieces, and those which had been least mutilated by the wolf's claws, to present to Madame Magloire. His first intention had been to go in person with his gift to the bailiff, but Thibault was beginning to have a smattering of the ways of the world, and thought it would therefore be more becoming to allow his offering of game to precede him. To this end he employed a peasant on payment of a few coppers to carry the game to the bailiff of Erneville, merely accompanying it with a slip of paper on which he wrote, from Monsieur Thibault. He himself was to follow closely on the message, and indeed, so closely did he do so, that he arrived just as Maitre Magloire was having the game he had received spread out on the table. The bailiff, in the warmth of his gratitude, extended his arms toward his friend of the previous night, and tried to embrace him, uttering loud cries of joy. I say tried, for two things prevented him from carrying out his wish, one the shortness of his arms, the other the rotundity of his person. But thinking that where his capacities were insufficient, Madame Magloire might be of assistance, he ran to the door, calling at the top of his voice, Susanna! Susanna! 
There was so unusual a tone in the bailiff's voice that his wife felt sure something extraordinary had happened. But whether for good or ill, she was unable to make sure, and downstairs she came, therefore, in great haste, to see for herself what was taking place. She found her husband, wild with delight, trotting round to look on all sides at the game spread on the table, and it must be confessed that no sight could have more greatly rejoiced a gourmand's eye. As soon as he caught sight of Susanna, "'Look, look, madame,' he cried, clapping his hands together. "'See what our friend Thibault has brought us, and thank him for it. Praise be to God!' There is one person who knows how to keep his promises. He tells us he will send a hamper of game, and he sends us a cartload. Shake hands with him, embrace him at once, and just look here at this. Madame Magloire graciously followed out her husband's orders. She gave Thibault her hand, allowed him to kiss her, and cast her beautiful eyes over the supply of food which elicited such exclamations of admiration from the bailiff and as a supply which was to make such an acceptable addition to the ordinary daily fare, it was certainly worthy of all admiration. First, as prime pieces came a boar's head and ham, firm and savory morsels. Then a fine three-year-old kid, which should have been as tender as the dew that only the evening before beaded the grass at which it was nibbling. Next came hares, fine fleshy hares from the heath of Gondreville, full-fed on wild thyme and then such scented pheasants and such delicious red-legged partridges that once on the spit the magnificence of their plumage was forgotten in the perfume of their flesh. And all these good things the fat little man enjoyed in advance in his imagination. He already saw the boar broiled on the coals, the kid dressed with a sauce piquante, the hares made into a pasty, the pheasants stuffed with truffles, the partridges dressed with cabbage, and he put so much fervor and feeling into his orders and directions that merely to hear him was enough to set a gourmand's mouth watering. It was this enthusiasm on the part of the bailiff which no doubt made Madame Suzanne appear somewhat cold and unappreciative in comparison. Nevertheless, she took the initiative and with much graciousness assured Thibault that she would on no account allow him to return to his farms until all the provisions, with which, thanks to him, the larder would now overflow, had been consumed. You may guess how delighted Thibault was at having his cherished wishes thus met by Madame herself. He promised himself no end of grand things from this stay at Erneville, and his spirits rose to the point of himself proposing to Maitre Magloire that they should indulge in a preparatory whack of liquor to prepare their digestions for the savory dishes that Mademoiselle Perina was preparing for them. Maitre Magloire was quite gratified to see that Thibault had forgotten nothing, not even the cook's name. He sent for some vermouth, a liquor as yet but little known in France, having been imported from Holland by the Duke of Orléans, and of which a present had been made by His Highness's head cook to his predecessor. Thibault made a face over it. He did not think this foreign drink was equal to a nice little glass of native Chablis. But when assured by the bailiff that, thanks to the beverage, he would in an hour's time have a ferocious appetite, he made no further remark and affably assisted his host to finish the bottle. Madame Susanna, meanwhile, had returned to her own room to smarten herself up a bit, as women say, which generally means an entire change of Raymond. It was not long before the dinner hour sounded, and Madame Zuzana came downstairs again. She was perfectly dazzling in a splendid dress of grey damask trimmed with pearl, and the transports of amorous admiration into which Thibault was thrown by the sight of her prevented the shoemaker from thinking of the awkwardness of the position in which he now unavoidably found himself, dining as he was for the first time with such handsome and distinguished company. 
To his credit, be it said, he did not make bad use of his opportunities. Not only did he cast frequent and unmistakable sheep's eyes at his fair hostess, but he gradually brought his knee nearer to hers and finally went so far as to give a gentle pressure. Suddenly, and while Thibault was engaged in this performance, Madame Susanna, who was looking sweetly towards him, opened her eyes and stared fixedly a moment. Then she opened her mouth and went off into such a violent fit of laughter that she almost choked and nearly went into hysterics. Maitre Magloire, taking no notice of the effect, turned straight to the cause, and he now looked at Thibault, and was much concerned and alarmed with what he thought to see. Then, with nervous state of excitement into which his wife had been thrown by her hilarity, "'Ah, my dear fellow!' he cried, stretching two little agitated arms towards Thibault. "'You are in flames! You are in flames!' Thibault sprang up hastily. "'Where? How?' he asked. "'Your hair is on fire,' answered the bailiff in all sincerity, and so genuine was his terror that he seized the water-bottle that was in front of his wife in order to put out the conflagration blazing among Thibault's locks. The shoemaker involuntarily put up his hand to his head, but feeling no heat, he at once guessed what was the matter, and fell back into his chair, turning horribly pale. He had been so preoccupied during the last two days that he had quite forgotten to take the same precaution he had done before visiting the owner of the mill, and had omitted to give his hair that particular twist whereby he was able to hide the hairs of which the black wolf had acquired the proprietorship under his others. Added to this, he had during this short period given vent to so many little wishes, one here and one there, all more or less to the detriment of his neighbor, that the flame-colored hairs had multiplied to an alarming extent, and at this moment any one of them could vie in brilliancy with the light from the two wax candles which lit the room. "'Well, you did give me a dreadful fright, Monsieur Magloire,' said Thibault, trying to conceal his agitation. "'But, but,' responded the bailiff, still pointing with a certain remains of fear at Thibault's flaming lock of hair. "'That is nothing,' continued Thibault. "'Do not be uneasy about the unusual color of some of my hair. It came from a fright my mother had with a pan of hot coals that nearly set her hair on fire before I was born.' "'But what is more strange still?' said Madame Susanna, who had swallowed a whole glassful of water in the effort to control her laughter. "'That I have remarked this dazzling peculiarity for the first time to-day.' "'Ah, really,' said Thibault, scarcely knowing what to say in answer. "'The other day,' Madame Susanna continued, "'it seemed to me that your hair was as black as my velvet mantle, and yet, believe me, I did not fail to study you most attentively, Monsieur Thibault.' This last sentence, reviving Thibault's hopes, restored him once more to good humor. "'Ah, madame,' he replied, "'you know the proverb, red hair, warm heart, and the other. Some folks are like ill-made sabots, smooth outside, but rough to wear.' Madame Magloire had a face at this low proverb about wooden shoes, but as was often the case with the bailiff, he did not agree with his wife on this point. "'My friend Thibault utters words of gold,' he said and I need not go far to be able to point the truth of his proverbs. See, for example, this soup we have here, which has nothing much in its appearance to commend it, but never have I found onion and bread fried in goose-fat more to my taste. And after this there was no further talk of Thibault's fiery head. Nevertheless, it seemed as if Madame Susanna's eyes were irresistibly attracted to this unfortunate lock, and every time that Thibault's eyes met the mocking look in hers, 
he thought he detected on her face a reminiscence of the laugh which had not long since made him feel so uncomfortable he was very much annoyed at this and in spite of himself he kept putting up his hand to try and hide the unfortunate lock under the rest of his hair but the hairs were not only unusual in color but also of a phenomenal stiffness it was no longer human hair but horse hair in vain thibault endeavored to hide the devil's hairs beneath his own nothing not even the hairdresser's tongs could have induced them to lie otherwise than in the way which seemed natural to them but although so occupied with thinking of his hair thibault's legs still continued their tender maneuvers and although madame magloire made no response to their solicitations she apparently had no wish to escape from them and thibault was presumptuously led to believe that he had achieved a conquest they sat on pretty late into the night and madame susanna who appeared to find the evening dragged rose several times from the table and went backwards and forwards to other parts of the house which afforded the bailiff opportunities of frequent visits to the cellar he had so many bottles in the lining of his waistcoat and once on the table he emptied them so rapidly that little by little his head sank lower and lower onto his chest and it was evidently high time to put an end to the bout if he was to be saved from falling under the table thibault decided to profit by this condition of things and to declare his love to the bailiff's wife without delay judging it a good opportunity to speak while the husband was heavy with drink he therefore expressed a wish to retire for the night whereupon they rose from the table and perina was called and bidden to show the guest to his room as he followed her along the corridor he made enquiries of her concerning the different rooms number one was maitre magloire's number two that of his wife and number three was his the bailiff's room and his wife's communicated with one another by an inner door thibault's room had access to the corridor only he also noticed that madame susanna was in her husband's room no doubt some pious sense of conjugal duty had taken her there the good man was in a condition approaching to that of noah when his sons took occasion to insult him and madame susanna's assistance would seem to have been needed to get him into his room thibault left his own room on tiptoe carefully shut his door behind him listened for a moment at the door of madame susanna's room heard no sound within felt for the key found it in the lock paused for a second and then turned it the door opened the room was in total darkness but having for so long consorted with wolves thibault had acquired some of their characteristics and among others that of being able to see in the dark he cast a rapid glance around the room to the right was the fireplace facing it a couch with a large mirror above it behind him on the side of the fireplace a large bed hung with figured silk in front of him near the couch a dressing-table covered with a profusion of lace and last of all two large draped windows he hid himself behind the curtains of one of these instinctively choosing the window that was farthest removed from the husband's room after waiting a quarter of an hour during which time thibault's heart beat so violently that the sound of it fatal omen reminded him of the click-clack of the mill-wheel at Coriella, madame susanna entered the room thibault's original plan had been to leave his hiding-place as soon as madame susanna came in and the door was safely shut behind her and there and then to make avowal of his love but on consideration fearing that in her surprise and before she recognized who it was she might not be able to suppress a cry which would betray them he decided that it would be better to wait until monsieur magloire was asleep beyond all power of being awakened perhaps also this procrastination may have been partly due to that feeling which all men have 
however resolute of purpose they may be of wishing to put off the critical moment when on this moment depend such chances as hung on the one which was to decide for or against the happiness of the shoemaker for thibault by dint of telling himself that he was madly in love with madame magloire had ended by believing that he really was so and in spite of being under the protection of the black wolf he experienced all the timidity of the genuine lover so he kept himself concealed behind the curtains the bailiff's wife however had taken up her position before the mirror of her pompadour table and was decking herself out as if she were going to a festival or preparing to make one of a procession she tried on ten veils before making choice of one she arranged the folds of her dress she fastened a triple row of pearls round her neck then she loaded her arms with all the bracelets she possessed finally she dressed her hair with the minutest care thibault was lost in conjectures as to the meaning of all this coquetry when all of a sudden a dry grating noise as if some hard body coming in contact with a pane of glass made him start madame susanna started too and immediately put out the lights the shoemaker then heard her steps softly to the window and cautiously open it whereupon there followed some whisperings of which thibault could not catch the words but by drawing the curtains a little aside he was able to distinguish in the darkness the figure of a man of gigantic stature who appeared to be climbing through the window thibault instantly recalled his adventure with the unknown combatant whose mantle he had clung to and whom he had so triumphantly disposed of by hitting him on the forehead with a stone as far as he could make out this would be the same window from which the giant had descended when he made use of thibault's two shoulders as a ladder the surmise of the identity was undoubtedly founded on a logical conclusion as a man was now climbing in at the window a man could very well have been climbing down from it and if a man did climb down from it unless of course madame magloire's acquaintances were many in number and she had a great variety of tastes if a man did climb down from it in all probability it was the same man who at this moment was climbing in but whoever this nocturnal visitor might be madame susanna held out her hand to the intruder who took a heavy jump into the room which made the floor tremble and set all the furniture shaking the apparition was certainly not a spirit but a corporal body and moreover one that came under the category of heavy bodies oh take care my lord madame susanna's voice was heard to say heavily as my husband sleeps if you make such a noise as that you will wake him up by the devil in his horns my fair friend replied the stranger i cannot alight like a bird and thibault recognized the voice as that of the man with whom he had had the altercation a night or two before although while i was waiting under your window for the happy moment my heart was so sick with longing that i felt as if wings must grow ere long to bear me up into this dear wished-for little room and i too my lord replied madame magloire with a simper i too was troubled to leave you outside to freeze in the cold wind but the guest who was with us this evening only left us half an hour ago and what have you been doing my dear one during this last half hour i was obliged to help monsieur magloire my lord and to make sure that he would not come and interrupt us you were right as you always are my heart's love my lord is too kind replied susanna or more correctly tried to reply for her last words were interrupted as if by some foreign body being placed upon her lips which prevented her from finishing the sentence at the same moment thibault heard a sound which was remarkably like that of a kiss 
The wretched man was beginning to understand the extent of the disappointment of which he was again the victim. His reflections were interrupted by the voice of the newcomer, who coughed two or three times. "'Suppose we shut the window, my love,' said the voice after this preliminary cough. "'Oh, my lord, forgive me,' said Madame Magloire. "'It ought to have been closed before.' And so saying, she went to the window, which she first shut close, and then closed even more hermetically by drawing the curtains across it. The stranger, meanwhile, who made himself thoroughly at home, had drawn an easy chair up to the fire and sat with his legs stretched out, warming his feet in the most luxurious fashion, reflecting no doubt that for a man half-frozen the most immediate necessity is to thaw himself. Madame Susanna seemed to find no cause of offence in this behaviour on the part of her aristocratic lover, but came up to his chair and leant her pretty arms over the back in the most fascinating posture. Thibault had a good view of the group from behind, well thrown up by the light of the fire, and he was overcome with inward rage. The stranger appeared for a while to have no thought beyond that of warming himself, but at last the fire having performed its appointed task, he asked, "'And this stranger, this guest of yours, who is he?' "'Ah, my lord,' answered Madame Magloire, "'you already know him, I think, only too well.' "'What?' said the favoured lover. "'Do you mean to say it was that drunken lout of the other night again?' "'The very same, my lord.' well all i can say is if i ever get him into my grip again my lord responded susanna in a voice as soft as music you must not harbour evil designs against your enemies on the contrary you must forgive them as we are taught to do by our holy religion there is also another religion which teaches that my dearest love one of which you are the all-supreme goddess and i but a humble neophyte and I am wrong in wishing evil to the scoundrel, for it was owing to the treacherous and cowardly way in which he attacked and did for me that I had the opportunity I had so long wished for of being introduced into this house. The lucky blow on my forehead with his stone made me faint, and because you saw I had fainted, you called your husband. It was on account of your husband finding me without consciousness beneath your window and believing I had been set upon by thieves that he had carried me indoors, and lastly, because you were so moved by pity at the thought of what I had suffered for you, that you were willing to let me in here. And so this good-for-nothing fellow, this contemptible scamp, is after all the source of all good, for all the good of life for me is in your love. And nevertheless, if he ever comes within reach of my whip, he will not have a very pleasant time of it. It seems, then, muttered Thibault, swearing to himself, then my wish has again turned to the advantage of someone else. Ah, my friend Black Wolf, I have still something to learn, but confound it all. I will in future think so well over my wishes before expressing them that the pupil will become master. But to whom does that voice that I seem to know belong? Thibault continued, trying to recall it. For the voice is familiar to me, of that I am certain. You would be even more incensed against him, poor wretch, if I were to tell you something. And what is that, my love? Well, that good-for-nothing fellow, as you call him, is making love to me. Phew! That is so, my lord, said Madame Susanna, laughing. What, that bore, that low rascal? Where is he? Where does he hide himself? By Beelzebub, I'll throw him to my dogs to eat. And then all at once Thibault recognized his man. 
ah my lord baron he muttered it's you is it pray do not trouble yourself about it my lord said madame susanna laying her two hands on her lover's shoulders and obliging him to sit down again your lordship is the only person whom i love and even were it not so a man with a lock of red hair right in the middle of his forehead is not the one to whom i should give away my heart and as the recollection of this lock of hair which had made her laugh so at dinner came back to her she again gave way to her amusement a violent feeling of anger towards the bailiff's wife took possession of thibault ah traitress he exclaimed to himself what would i not give for your husband your good upright husband to walk in at this moment and surprise you scarcely was the wish uttered when the door of communication between susanna's room and that of monsieur magloire was thrown wide open and in walked her husband with an enormous nightcap on his head which made him look nearly five feet high and holding a lighted candle in his hand aha muttered thibault well done it's my turn to laugh now madame magloire end of chapter twelve recording by john van stan savannah georgia